Good morning. I'm excited to be here with you. You know how much of a child I am about snow. Superman gets his powers from the sun. I think I get mine from snow. So I'm excited. We get to worship. We've got snow. We get to take the Lord's Supper together. Um, it's going to be a really, really good day. So thank you for joining us. Take out your copy of God's Word and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 for the final time. We've had 10 weeks in chapter 1, and we could easily do 10 more, but we have to keep moving. This week we're going to be looking at verses 43 through 51, which goes right along with our previous passage. You can find the text on page 887 in the Pew Bible. We have now left behind John the witness. John has proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now some of his disciples have left behind John the witness. Because that was the whole point of John the Witness, to witness to the coming Messiah, the Savior, from sin. And so John preaches, look, look at the one who takes away sin, the sin which is death, the sin which separates you from God. Look at him, look to him, and live. Simple enough for Andrew and for John, the author. They could literally look at Jesus with their physical eyes and see him. What about us? 2,000 years later. What does it mean to look at the ascended, risen, not physically in front of our eyes, Jesus? Oh, quite simply, it, it means to believe. It means faith. John the witness says, behold, look. John the author says that this is the very purpose for the whole book in chapter 20, verse 31, where he says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This whole thing is about life, spiritual life, fulfillment, identity, satisfaction, joy, heaven, all of it. John says, behold. Other John says, believe. Same thing. Behold and live, believe and live. Life is found only as we behold, believe, and then put ourselves entirely in the hands of the one who is life. So the questions we've been asking ourselves are, where are we looking? We saw the question Jesus asked last week, what are you seeking? Is it Jesus himself? And now, last week and this week, we're seeing what is the result of this look of life. And the result is discipleship. Those who savingly see the Savior will sacrificially follow the Savior. Christians, by definition, are disciples of Jesus. That means that they are followers of Jesus, learners of Jesus, livers with Jesus. They are taught by Jesus, abide with Jesus. Why? Oh, because they love and they delight in Jesus. And then because they love and delight in Jesus, they have seen that he is the only Savior from sin. They then desire and delight to bring others to Jesus. And what we're going to see as we read in a moment is that the very same thing happens in our passage this morning. And as this passage seems to go thematically with the previous one, we're going to stick to our discussion of discipleship. What really is a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Is it someone who goes to church? Is it someone who believes some stuff about Jesus? Is it someone who doesn't watch certain movies or do certain things? What is a Christian? We're trying to move away from this simplistic unbiblical and dangerous assumption that you are a Christian simply if you say that you are or kind of like Jesus or go to church sometimes. No, a Christian is one who follows Jesus. If you're not following Jesus, you're not a Christian. It's pretty simple. So how can you tell what does that look like? What do disciples do? Point number one, bring others to Jesus. Sound familiar? We had this exact same point 
last week. Good. Because the exact same thing happens this week. John seems to be going out of his way to highlight the unbreakable link between discipleship and evangelism. He is saying this is simply what disciples do. So yes, we looked at that last week, but how many of us attempted to bring anyone to Jesus last week? So we're going to look at it again. Point number one, bring others to Jesus. Point number two, know and love Jesus. Point number three, grow in your knowledge and love of the greatness of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus, bring others to Jesus, know and love Jesus, and then grow in their knowledge and love of the greatness of Jesus. Seems pretty simple, probably. You, right, yeah, know Jesus and love him. All right, I get it. Sure. Good. Listen, simple is good. Our problem is often not a, a problem of knowledge, but of obedience. This passage seems to be here both to reveal to us the nature of a discipleship of Jesus, while at the same time further revealing to us the glorious nature of the person of Jesus. And it's as we see the glorious nature of the person of Jesus that by the grace of God, working through the Spirit, we will then be compelled to follow him and to love him and to grow in that knowledge. So we keep coming back to the word um, so that God will grab us through that word, show us Christ, and then give us a desire to be with him and to follow him. So let's see if we can combine nature of following Jesus and the glorious nature of Jesus himself, both as we look at this last text in John chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 43. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 51. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. If you would bow with me, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Father, I believe that your word is inspired by that spirit. I believe that it is living and active and able to make us wise for salvation, uh, 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 able to equip us for every good work. Father, we come now to your word and ask uh, that you would work through it. We ask that you would uh, show us Jesus Christ. Father, as we seek to understand the nature of what it means to follow Jesus I pray that we would do that uh, by seeing how good and glorious and wonderful Jesus is. Capture our attention, our gaze, our hearts uh, with his beauty, uh, with his glory, with his goodness, and with his kindness. Father, please show us Christ. Um, make us like him. Help us to love him. Father, for anyone who is here and does not know Jesus, we pray that you would open their eyes. We pray that you would work through their word and show them Jesus Christ and save them from their sins. 
Father, we pray and ask that you would help now with the preaching and the hearing of your word. We pray that you would be glorified. We pray that we would be edified. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, point number one, disciple, bring others to Jesus. I can hear some of you saying, well, we know, we know, you, you, you said that last week. Well, get over it. Uh, I'm repeating myself because John is repeating himself. I'm emphasizing this because John is emphasizing this. Um, I'm emphasizing this because there are few areas where many of us are more disobedient than this area. And remember, when I talk about evangelism, when I tell you to do these things, I am speaking as the chief of sinners. I am speaking to myself as well. But we've just, many of us, assumed that this is an optional part of being a disciple of Jesus, as if evangelism was an elective we could take or leave. Well, John is making it clear from the very beginning, at the very beginning of seeing the disciples and what it means to follow Jesus, that no, this is a core class. This gets at the very heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Look at verse 43. We know that from verse 28, John has been baptizing in Bethany across the Jordan. We just don't know exactly where that is today. Mark 1.4 just tells us that John has been baptizing in the wilderness. Right? So he's on the east side of the Jordan, east for you, I guess. He's outside, he's away. Jesus has now come to John. Jesus has been baptized. He's then gone further out into the wilderness on his own to be tempted and then to be victorious. The second Adam succeeding where the first Adam failed. And now here in verse 43, we see that it is time for Jesus to begin his public ministry. Jesus is now transitioning from the wilderness to Galilee, to home, to Israel, to begin his ministry. And either before or on his way to Galilee, remember up in the north of Israel, where everything is going to begin in chapter 2, verse 1, we first see that Jesus found Philip. Found. And this has been an important word for this section that we kind of ignored last week to focus on this week. Look up at verse 41 for a second. Remember, because of the testimony of John the witness, behold the Lamb of God... Andrew and John, the author, have followed Jesus. And what's the next thing they do after they followed Jesus? They found others. Verse 41. He, Andrew, first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. That's two times. Verse 43. Our verse. Jesus found Philip. That's three times. Look down at verse 45. After Philip was found by Jesus, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him. That's number four and five in just a couple of short verses. Hey, don't miss the order. Jesus found Philip and said, Follow me. Then Philip found Nathanael and said, Come and see. So we've titled our first point, Disciples Bring Others to Jesus, to kind of go along with what we looked at last week. But we could just as easily title this first point, Disciples Find Other Disciples. This is what disciples do. Disciples find other disciples. To follow Jesus is in part to find others to follow Jesus. Followers are finders. And the Greek word for found is a good one. You actually know this word. It's heurisko. You know it today as the word Eureka. We most associate it with the great Californian gold rush. Our resident Californian, Jeremy, here is a huge 49ers fan. They were in the Super Bowl last year, not even in the playoffs this year. It hurts. It's painful. I'm sorry, Jeremy. I've been there. 
But they're called the 49ers because that was the year of the rush. The gold niners were named, dubbed the 49ers. And the cry, Eureka, which literally means, I have found it, is associated with them and with gold. There's a city in northern Cali named Eureka, and it's the state motto, right, of the whole state. Eureka, I have found it. The oldest root of the famous cry goes all the way back to the ancient Greek mathematician Archimedes. Archimedes made one of his great discoveries in the bathtub. He, I do some of my best thinking in the shower. Apparently, there's something to that. Apparently, as Archimedes climbed into the bathtub, he noticed that as he goes down into the water, he noticed that the water level rises. And then he realized that you could figure out the volume of an object by submerging it in water and then observing how much water was displaced. This, again, was related to gold and finding out the volume and weight of gold. And this was apparently so big, as the story goes, that Archimedes immediately leaped up and then went running through the streets of Syracuse naked, shouting, Eureka, I have found it. Again, whether the story is true or not, and the words use in the gold rush, this, this helps to illustrate an important truth about discipleship and evangelism that we often miss. Archimedes and the 49ers are crying out Eureka because they have found something of great value. You didn't have to force 49ers to move to Northern California. You didn't have to teach them a class on panning for gold. You didn't have to guilt or manipulate them into going out and looking for gold. Why? Because it was gold, right? And gold is of great, great value. And so they desired to pursue the gold. They were overjoyed when they found the gold. And so they cried out, Eureka, I have found it. That's our word. And that's exactly what Philip is doing in verse 45. Jesus, the one of infinitely great value, has found him. And so Philip immediately found Nathanael and said to him, Eureka, I have found him. The one of infinitely great value. Which is exactly what Andrew has just done and said up in verse 41. Eureka, we have found the Messiah. And so church, this is why we evangelize. Or, or at least, this is why we want to evangelize. It's not because we enjoy awkward conversations. It's not because we like potentially offending people by telling them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that everyone without Jesus goes to hell. No, it's because by the grace of God, we have beheld the Lamb of God. We have by a work of the Spirit in our heart looked and lived. We have seen the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. We have struck gold, eternal spiritual gold, the forgiveness of sins, life everlasting with the God who is life and joy and pleasure forevermore. And so we cry out, Eureka, oh, I found him. And then we want others to find what we have found. We want people that we love to love the one that has so loved us. We even increasingly want strangers that we do not even know to know the one who has so known us. And that's why we evangelize. Because that is what a disciple does. A disciple brings others to Jesus. A disciple found by Jesus then goes and finds others. So evangelism is simply the cry Eureka, I have found him, spoken to those who have not yet found him. And John is going out of the way at the beginning here to make it clear that this is what disciples do. This is fundamental to the nature of following Jesus. Followers are finders. But 
is it not true that this is precisely what so many of us do not do? Uh, Alexander McLaren, the great 19th century Scottish Baptist minister, says in the context of this passage, this man, before he was four and twenty hours a disciple, had made another. Some of you have been disciples for many years and have never even tried to make one. Ouch. If I was big and cool like Vody Bauckham, I'd say what he always says. If you can't say amen, you better say ouch. Um, I can't get away with it because I'm not as cool as him. But why do we so struggle with this? Well, again, it's in large part, as Peter said in Sunday school a couple of months back, there's a lot of factors. There's our personality. I can say, listen, I'm an introvert. I don't like talking to anyone, much less strangers. Uh, maybe there's some fear of man. Maybe there's, we don't really know what to say or how to do it very well. Um, but Peter, a couple months ago, then went on to say, I argue, and he's correct, I argue that we do not evangelize because of a single reason, and that is we do not know God or we do not know him as much as we should. I agree. And that's why, church, we're going to start this class specifically on evangelism next week, next Sunday, the 14th, right here in this room, 10 o'clock. We're going to spend a couple of months in Sunday school learning about the what and the why and the how of evangelism. We need to do that, and you need to come to that, because you're probably as bad as I am when it comes to to evangelism. But, as Peter points out, it all must start with verse 29. It all must start with, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It has to start with each of us seeing the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ until we see him as the one of infinite value. We will not cry out, Eureka, I have found him. And so, yes, we need to specifically learn about the how of evangelism. We'll do that. But we won't get very far with that until we understand and appreciate the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's why starting next week, we'll we'll begin with, with God, with who he is and with what he's doing. Then we'll move on to his glorious gospel and why it is such eternally good news. Because until we're captured and compelled by the glory of the good news, we will remain hesitant to find others and bring others to Jesus. Which is just such a great tragedy. It's something that we all need to wrestle with. I'm in like this ongoing year-plus-long process of repenting of this. Um, we have found the one who is of infinite value. Whatever that thing is that you most love, that you would be a great salesperson for, that you love to talk about and have no problem talking about, Jesus is of infinitely better and more beautiful and more and he is more valuable than whatever that thing is church are we bringing others to jesus are we at least compelled and desirous and motivated to at all it starts with seeing and savoring him and maybe then just some next baby steps would be simply making sure everyone around you friends family co-workers maybe making sure that they know you go to church are you like a secret Christian that, you know, kind of like, ah, I don't really want to mess with this, so the people around me don't really know, and then it's just easier? Maybe it just starts with making that known, right, and being bold enough to make it clear that, hey, this is who I am. Hey, what would you do this weekend? I went to church. Um, there's an opportunity for conversation right there. Maybe it starts with being more intentional and regular and inviting your friends to come to church with you. Bribe them with lunch, and then I'll tell them about Jesus 
for you, right? It doesn't need to be complicated, but we've got to start taking some steps to be more intentional and proactive. We've got to be convinced that to be a disciple is to find others and to bring them to Jesus as Philip found Nathaniel. You just cannot miss this connection no matter which gospel that you bring. In the synoptics, it's put in the language of Jesus calls them and says, I will make you fishers of men. This is what you are. Church, followers of Jesus are finders of others to follow Jesus. And that gets us to point two. Yes, it starts with seeing and savoring him. Because number two, disciples know and love Jesus. And sure, pretty obvious. But remember, we struggle to do point one in large part because of our struggle to do point two. To truly recognize Jesus for who he is. To truly know and love him. We don't evangelize because we don't know God as we should. Disciples know and love Jesus. Go back to verse 45. We haven't read all of it yet. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and he said to him, We have found him. Him who? What does he know about Jesus? Him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Pause for a second. Before we unpack our main point here, we first have to take note of this. This should get its own point. This should get its own sermon because this is huge. Uh, maybe many of us struggle to read the Old Testament. That's a problem because the Old Testament makes up about 77% of our whole Bible. Pick up any book and you're going to have a hard time understanding that book if you only read the last 23% of the book. Don't do that. Uh, you got to read the first part as well. But we often avoid it because it's harder. It's, it's different. It's even furtherly culturally distanced from us. We kind of get the New Testament. We get what it's about. But we struggle to understand what the Old Testament is about. Good news. Verse 45 tells us. It tells us what the Old Testament is about. It tells us that the Old Testament is about the same thing that the New Testament is about. It's about Jesus. Philip says, look at the language that he uses. Philip says, we found him whom Moses in the law, right, the law used there, Torah, the Torah, generally refers to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Written by Moses, often called the Penta Five Tuk, scrolls or, or book. The Pentateuch, the first five books. Philip says, he has found the one that Moses, in those first five Old Testament books, wrote about. He's writing about Adam and Eve. He's writing about Abraham. He's writing about Jacob, as we'll see in a second. Moses, all that. He said, no, 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 listen. By the way, he's writing about Jesus. Writing 1,400 years before this moment, Philip says Moses was writing about Jesus. And then he said that the prophets, too, also wrote about Jesus. And then that, that phrase, the law and the prophets, put together, was often used simply to mean the whole Hebrew scriptures or our whole Old Testament. Philip says all of those 39 books wrote about Jesus. But quite simply, the Old Testament is about Jesus. Read it accordingly. Read it as revelation of Jesus. Yes, there are types and shadows. There are rituals and ceremonies. There are laws. There are persons. But there are all of them ultimately pointing forward to him. And just in case you think, hey, you know, this is Philip. He's kind of new to this. Maybe he's mistaken. Well, in John 5, 46, Jesus himself says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he, Moses, wrote of me, Jesus. So Jesus specifically says Moses, writing these first five books 1,400 years ago, wrote of me. How? 
we've seen this. We've tried to be pretty intentional about this as we were working through Genesis. Genesis 3.15, we saw the promise of the one to come, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That's Jesus. I've made the case that the angel of the Lord must be the Lord himself, the Son of God, the pre-incarnate Jesus. Uh, we read back in John 1.18 that no one has ever seen God. Wait a second. All kinds of people see God in the Old Testament. Why? Who? This, God, the Son, pre-incarnate, Jesus Christ, the Word who would later be made flesh. We've seen God's provision as a lamb for the sacrifice in place of Isaac. We've seen the whole sacrificial system preparing and pointing us forward to Jesus. And on and on and on we could go. The Old Testament is about Jesus. You know, we sometimes struggle to get that today, but, but here it is. Uh, from Philip's mouth and Jesus' mouth and John, the author's mouth himself. Philip got it 2,000 years ago. He recognized Jesus. He knew him. Disciples of Jesus know Jesus. It's the same thing again up with Andrew in verse 41. When Andrew says, Eureka, we have found the Messiah. John's actually the only one who uses this, this Aramaic Hebrew word, Messiah, and then he translates it for us, which means Christ. Right? Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, it is a title. It is Messiah in the Greek, which means in the, in the uh, Hebrew, Messiah simply means the anointed one. Remember back in uh, verse 20, this delegation had come to John the witness asking him who he was. Are you the Christ? Are you the one that the Old Testament is about. And there were all kinds of different messianic expectations in this first century Israel. Everyone understood it differently. Everyone was partly wrong, as we'll see. But in the Old Testament, the king of Israel was called an anointed one, Messiah. The high priest was called an anointed one. Prophets were called anointed ones. They were anointed of God. They were set apart for a special purpose. Generally, these three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And then we kind of start to see this, this movement and all these kind of pointing forward to this one figure that would come, this one Messiah, the expected one, who would in some way come to deliver his people. And Andrew comes in the context of all these sometimes uh, misunderstood messianic expectations, and he says, we found him. We found the Messiah, the one that the Old Testament is about. So he and Philip are basically saying the same thing. Right? The Messiah is the one that the Old Testament's about. Uh, Philip is saying... We found the one that Moses and the prophets are writing about. So the disciples of Jesus are recognizing Jesus. They are knowing Jesus, and they are excited about it. Back to the text, verse 45. Again, Philip has found Nathanael and said, We have found the one uh, whom everything is about, the Messiah. But look at the contrast between the first part of what he says and the second part. The one everything is about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's sort of anticlimactic, a little bit. One of these things is not like the other. And Nathaniel sees that. Look at Nathaniel's response in verse 46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why the Nazareth animosity? Well, we'll find out in chapter 21, verse 2, that Nathaniel is from Cana, where we're going to see the next story take place in chapter 2. Nazareth and Cana were neighboring towns. So, and maybe there was some sort of local rivalry between the villages. It would be like me saying, can anything good come out of Duke University? Of course not. Right? They're the bad guys. We, University of North Carolina, are the good guys. Right? Note the tie. That's why we smoked them last night in our basketball game. And I wrote that before the game because I was confident that we would win. 
So maybe it's just a rivalry like that. I mean, it's possible. Uh, More likely, it could be that Nazareth was really just a town of no significance. Philip has just said that the whole Old Testament is about Jesus. Nathaniel probably knew his whole Old Testament. Hey, go read the whole thing, by the way. Never mentions Nazareth once. (laughs) Doesn't show up a single time in the Hebrew Scriptures and any of the ancient Jewish writings at that time as well. Nazareth is a know-nothing town. But the Old Testament does specifically mention that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem, not Nazareth. So maybe Nathaniel is making that connection. Jesus being from Nazareth and Jesus being the Messiah doesn't seem to fit. Philip, though, is unfazed. He is a disciple. Here is what disciples do. Look at his response to Nathaniel's skepticism. It's beautiful. Come and see. Listen, that's your church. That's our call to everyone. That's our goal with evangelism. Come and see. It's not how brilliant you are. Uh, I used to be obsessed with apologetics, and I had to know it all and be able to answer everybody's questions. I, uh, I've just kind of set some of that aside, and I think that's maybe a little bit of less value than I thought. Our invitation in evangelism is, is come and see. Right? It's, it's introduce them to Jesus. My goal in preaching is uh, there's pride and there's other things going on. Theoretically, I want my goal simply to be to expose you to Jesus and to reveal Jesus through the text so that you can come and see and then hope that by uh, the Spirit, God will then work in that uh, to save you or to sanctify you or whatever. My main hope in evangelism is to um, reveal something about core truths of Jesus and ideally what we want is we want to get people reading of Jesus. Go read John. That's your greatest evangelistic strategy right there. Tell them about Jesus. Get them to read John or read it with them. What we are trying to do and say is come and see. It's not how brilliant we can be to convince them. It's can we introduce them to the Savior and hope that the Lord works through that. Come and see Jesus. Hey, come and see him right now in the corporate worship of his people. Come and see him by reading his word uh, with us. Right? Are you saying to anyone, come and see so he just, he's, he, he believe, Philip believes this. Just, once he sees Jesus, he'll get it. Come and see. But then we get this strange interaction in verses 47 through 49. We're shifting the focus now from Philip, we're leaving him behind, to Nathaniel. Nathaniel, by the way, is never mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels as an apostle. He never shows up. Uh, but the apostle Bartholomew is regularly paired with Philip, and his name always shows up in the list with Philip. So it seems most likely that Nathaniel is Bartholomew, same, same person. Multiple names were, were common back then. And so in verse 47, Jesus sees Nathaniel coming and said, says to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. What does that mean? <sighs> this is a good question. The Israelites were the people of God. We know that. Uh, They were the ones to whom the Messiah was promised. Nathanael is one of them. And then Jesus says he's one of them in whom there is no deceit or guile or or trickery, the word could be translated. What's going on here? Well, the main point is that Jesus sees him. See is another important word in this, this passage that we're kind of skipping over. Jesus sees him. He sees through him. Jesus, in the context of our point, we're talking about the disciples know Jesus. Well, first, what we're seeing here is that Jesus knows Nathaniel. And this exchange takes on a lot more meaning when read in light of verses 50 and 51. We read Genesis 28 earlier in the service because that is what Jesus is referencing in verses 50 through 51. Remember, it's a story from Jacob's life. We'll look at it in a second. But Jacob was known for, and his name in some part can mean sort of trickster or, or cheater. 
And kind of the first things that we see him doing, right? First of all, he's just grasping his brother's ankle as they're kind of coming out. There's this weird episode. But then he tricks his brother Esau out of both his birthright and his inheritance. Uh, Jacob, a few chapters after all this, though, after what we read in 28, will meet God, will wrestle with God, and then will be renamed by God. And no longer will his name be Jacob, but his name will be Israel. So here, in some way, it seems Jesus, in the context of this story of Jacob that he's about to reference, says to Nathaniel that he is an Israelite with no deceit or trickery. Or as one commentator puts it, what Jesus is addressing Nathaniel as a true son of Israel in whom there is no Jacob. Pretty interesting. And he's an Israel in whom there is no Jacob, in whom he is about to um, reference. In verse 48, Nathaniel replies, though, here, I think here's the thrust. Some of the particulars aren't as clear, but here's the thrust. How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Okay, that seems kind of minor. It doesn't seem, but look at Nathaniel's response, though, in verse 49. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Okay, so what just happened? Why such a strong reaction and a strong confession in response to Jesus saying something about, hey, I saw you under that, that fig tree over there? That's a good question, actually. It's, it's kind of hard to say. We just we don't know for sure. There's all kinds of speculation out there. What was Nathaniel doing under the fig tree? Uh, was he meditating? Is there some sort of connection with the fig tree in Israel? Was there some, was he thinking about going and getting baptized by? There's all kinds of, there's ink is all kinds of spilled of, hey, here's what's going on. Here's what Nathaniel must have been doing. We don't know. And that's not the point. Nathaniel's activity is not the point. So we're not going to waste our time speculating on what he was doing. I think the point is just simply Jesus's supernatural divine knowledge. Jesus has seen something that a regular man could not see. Jesus knows something that a regular man could not have known. So Nathaniel is recognizing that. He is encountering Jesus, and he is encountering now this revelation of a supernatural knowledge that Jesus has, and that's what then leads to his great confession. He meets Jesus, he learns something of Jesus' divinity, I think, and he says, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. So the disciple is recognizing his master. He's recognizing his Lord. He knows him. And we've been emphasizing that, that being a disciple is more than just some intellectual knowledge about Jesus. Of course, it's more than that. But it's not less than that. Right? There, there is no discipleship. There is no faith. There is no life without that. Faith is knowledge. Knowledge is part of faith. It is beholding the Lamb of God and knowing the Lamb of God. It is being able to confess with Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel that Jesus is the Messiah, the one whom the whole Old Testament is about, the Son of God, the King of Israel. And so we saw last week how a disciple is simply, by definition, a student. A disciple is a learner. And so we need to be asking ourselves, right, are, are you a student of Jesus? Are you a learner of Jesus? I love preaching, right? So I read every book I can find on preaching. Some of you are thinking, maybe read some more books. Um, but no, I, I will. I'm going to. I'm, I'm reading one right now. I'll do that this afternoon. Uh, I love my wife, so I study her and I learn her. Eleven years in, I'm starting to figure out a couple of things, uh, though I've still got a long ways to go. 
I love my daughters, and so I study them, and I learn them. What are they like, and what do they like, and how is this one different from that one, and what do they get excited about, and what do they love, where are their um, tendencies towards sin, right? I want to know them better and better and better because I love them, right? It's just a simple fact that we become students of what we love. Are you a student of Jesus? Disciples know Jesus, and they love Jesus. Do you know what it means that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you know what it means that he is the Lamb of God, that he is prophet, priest, and king? Do you understand the significance of of what it means that he is God-made flesh and how that was absolutely required for your salvation? Do you understand what it means that Jesus is your substitutionary atonement? What are you doing to grow in your knowledge and love of your Savior? Because that's our point number three. Because this is what disciples of Jesus do. They grow in their knowledge and love of the greatness of Jesus. Look at verses 50 through 51. Nathaniel is rightly impressed by Jesus' display of supernatural knowledge. Look at what it says, though. It says, Jesus answered them, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And so in a sense, Jesus is saying, just wait. Watch this. Verse 51. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. There's the reference to Genesis chapter 28, which we read earlier, and the story of Jacob's ladder. It's back in chapter, uh, page 22 if you want to go uh, look at it. But we're not going to read it again, just kind of briefly summarized. Uh, we've seen the, all the deceit of Jacob, and so now he's, he is so wronged, his brother Esau. Jacob is not much of a hero in this story so far at all. Deceitful Jacob is now fearfully fleeing from his brother Esau, and so then he lays down exhausted to sleep with a rock for a pillow. You've got to be pretty tired uh, to use a rock for a pillow. And then God sends Jacob this dream, and it's a dream of a ladder. And it says he sees a ladder set up on the earth with its top reaching all the way to heaven. And then we see the angels of God ascending and descending on it. Then Yahweh, the Lord, stood above it and spoke to Jacob. He reaffirmed some of the promises that he has made to his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. And then he says to Jacob, I am with you. And I will keep you. I will not leave you. Again, there's the promise of, there's the promise of covenant. Right? There's the communion. There's the presence of God. And it says, when Jacob wakes up, Jacob says, Surely the Lord Yahweh is in this place. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. And he names the place Beth, Bet, house, El, Elohim, God, which means the house of God. Why is Jesus referencing that story. Well, think about what we just read in verse 45. By the way, I think that relates to this a lot. We've just found out that Jesus is him of whom Moses wrote. Moses wrote Genesis 28, by the way. Moses wrote the story that we just read. Um, Jesus is the one, then, whom this story is ultimately pointing us to and is ultimately about. Jesus is the true reality of which these stairs were merely a shadow. The latter links and connects heaven and earth. So Jesus is saying, I am the one who connects and links heaven and earth. The latter is a gateway to heaven. Jesus is saying, I am the gateway to heaven. The latter is Bethel, the house of God. Jesus is saying that I am Bethel, the true house of God. 
You see, Jacob is given this vision of revelation to confirm that God is with him and for him. Jesus is the true and better final revelation that confirms that God is with us and for us because Jesus is himself Emmanuel, God with us. It is in Jesus that God is revealed to us. It is in Jesus that God is with us. It is in Jesus that we have access, connection, link, gateway to God. He is, as he says there himself, the Son of Man. The last words of this foundational first chapter. This is the title that Jesus prefers to use for himself, straight out of Daniel 7. Probably because there was less room for confusion. King of Israel, we're going to see, there's a lot of potential for confusion. Son of man, maybe less so. But when Jesus self-designates, it's often with this title, Son of Man, coming out of Daniel 7. And so this chapter ends with further revelation of the person and work of Jesus and the promise of greater and more to come. This first chapter ends with another title of Jesus. And so in this 10th and final sermon on John chapter 1, step back for a second and look at chapter 1 overall. Look at how much we have learned about this Jesus in just these 51 verses. There, you could count this in different ways, so I'm not going to quibble, but there are at least 10 titles. I liked 10 because we've had 10 sermons. There are at least 10 titles given to Jesus just in this first chapter. Well, look back at the very first verse. There we learned that Jesus is the Word. There's one. Jesus is the Word. In that same verse, we learn that Jesus, who is the Word, was God. That's number two. So he is Word and God. Three, in verse four, we learn that Jesus is life. Verse uh, four and nine, the fourth one, we learn that Jesus is the light of men. He is the true light. So life and then light. Fifth title, look down at verse 14. That's the first time we see him revealed as the Son a look at verse 17, 6. Here's the first time he is revealed as uh, the, the Christ. Look at verse 29, the seventh title. We see that he is the Lamb of God. Number 8, verse 38, we see that he is rabbi. He is teacher. He is the great one. Uh, our passage now, verse 49, uh, number 9. We've already seen son, so son of God is kind of a repeat. First time, though, we see that he is the king of Israel. And then number 10, verse 51, we see that he is the son of man. Word, God, life, light, son, Christ, lamb, rabbi, king, son of man. Do we see how glorious and great then this Jesus must be? We're given so many terms and titles because he's like a facet of a diamond where you just can't quite capture all of it. And so we're given all of these different perspectives and angles and titles to just reveal to us a fraction of of the glory and we're just getting started 10 titles and jesus says you will see greater things than these and you will want and long to see greater things than these because disciples grow in their knowledge and their love of jesus and listen this this growth is proof of life Ephesians chapter 2, we did the second part of chapter 2 in Sunday school. The first part, we find out in Ephesians 2 that we were, all of us, dead in our trespasses and sins. Right? Dead things don't grow. Everyone apart from Christ is spiritually dead. If you are here this morning, if you are listening online, um, and you do not know and love Jesus, then know that the Bible says that you are spiritually dead. And that if something is not done about that, 
the result will be hell, eternal spiritual death. Our sin separates us from God. We were all of us dead. But Ephesians chapter 2 goes on to say it is God that makes us alive together in Christ. This is the only thing that can be done about your sin and your deadness. Jesus, the God-man, Jesus, God, who takes on flesh to take our place, right? We were supposed, we all know that we're supposed to be good, right? We're all trying and striving. Oh, I've got to be good enough. I've got to be a good person. Every religion says, hey, you know, let your good outweigh your bad. We all recognize internally that we're supposed to be good. And when we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that we're not. And we fail miserably. So, the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus comes to be good for us, to perfectly live the righteous life in our place that we were supposed to live. And since the wages of sin is death, since sin is our rejection of the God who is life, we get death, Jesus then also comes to satisfy our death debt that we owed for that sin by dying in our place. God says, hey, you justly deserve to die. And he then sends his own son to die in our place, fulfilling the law for us. So that we could be forgiven, so that we could be restored to God. And so then there's the great cry of Paul, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And so our response to this good news is believe, it's turn from your sin, it's repent and then turn to him and trust him, repentance and faith. You just cannot save yourself by being good, because you're not. And God's standard is perfection. And you are not perfect. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is. And he comes to live and to die for us. So trust him and live. There's the life. And in biology, they talk about the, the characteristics of life. Right? Some say there are five, six, eight, ten. I don't know. Ask, ask Henry. But one of them is always growth. Living things grow. Living people grow. I am struck regularly uh, by how much my physically living daughters are, are growing, and it makes me sad. Um, but, but spiritually living people grow as well. Are you growing in your knowledge of and your love for Jesus Christ? Are you growing in godliness in any way, in holiness? Are you pursuing Jesus through his word, through prayer, and through fellowship with his people? Because this is what disciples do. Disciples grow. They, by the grace of God, know their Savior, and they see increasingly that he is so good and that he is so glorious that they long to know more. Are you pursuing Christ? Let me tell you that he is, he is so, so worth it. He is an infinitely better use of your time and your attention. For, the Bible tells us that he's the very thing that you were made for. We all understand how important relationships are to life. And then we all understand how every one of them lets us down and doesn't ultimately fulfill us and satisfy us. Because these relationships were supposed to be pointers and reminders and testimonies to the fact that we are created for relationship with the one perfect person. The only one who can satisfy us and fulfill us and give us the joy uh, that we've been looking for and the identity and the security that we need. For he is the only infinite object and thus is the only one that can satisfy your soul. Have you tasted and seen that he is good? And then do you want more? 
Disciples are students of Jesus who know him and long to know as much of him as possible. And these disciples in our text know Jesus. They recognize something about who he is, and so they follow him, and Jesus says to them, and he promises to them and to us, you will see greater things than these. And have you had your eureka moment? And have you had that, that joyful discovery, that excitement, that gladness of, oh, I've, I have found him because he has found me first. He's the one. Whether you know it or not, he is the one that you are looking for because he is not only the one whom the whole Old Testament about is about, but he is the one whom the whole of reality is about. This first chapter here is, to, is here to reveal to us the bigness of Jesus. He is God himself. He is the creator of all that exists, the maker, uh, and he is also the redeemer, the master, the Lord, the savior, and friend. Do you know him as such? Are you growing in him? We met the apostle Peter for the first time up in verse 42. Uh, the final words that we have of Peter's are his, um, his last verse in 2 Peter chapter 3, 18. And he closes his masterful letter, and it kind of closes this book. This is the end. This is all we have from Peter, the last words. And he says this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And that's what disciples do. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Disciples of Jesus bring others to Jesus. Followers are finders. Disciples know and love Jesus. And disciples grow in their knowledge and love of the greatness of Jesus because by the grace of God and by a work of the Spirit through his word because we have recognized that he is infinitely and eternally great and glorious. And so we want to know him and we want others to know him as well. Let's close um, with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are great, and you are greatly to be praised. Father, my words can barely begin um, to communicate and comprehend your glory and your goodness. Father, your word reveals to us so wonderfully your son, Jesus Christ, um, who is the revelation of, of who you are. Father, we want to know you, and we find out who you are and what you are like by looking to him and by reading of him in your wonderful word. So, Father, we ask again as we close that you would show us Christ. We ask that you would continue to use your word uh, to shape and to sanctify and to mold us. Father, give us a taste and a love and an affection for Jesus Christ. We so want to move beyond um, just kind of this mere acknowledgement and recognition and um, ascension to the facts that Jesus is our Savior. Father, we, we want to love him. And we want to know him. And we want to recognize that it is knowing you and knowing your son Jesus um, that is eternal life. So, Father, I pray that we would look nowhere else but Jesus. pray that you would direct our gaze uh, by your spirit working through your word uh, to him. Father, if there's anyone uh, who is here today or who is listening online uh, who does not yet know um, Jesus Christ as Savior, who has not yet seen um, the misery of sin um, and the loneliness of sin, but then more importantly, seeing the beauty of the Savior who rescues and saves and redeems and restores relationship with you. Father, we ask um, that you would have mercy upon them. 
And we ask that you would show them Christ and that you would grant them repentance and faith. Father, we ask simply that you would continue to work in all of these ways uh, through your word. Um, help us to love your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.